Today, we bring you audio from the Embracing Autism IRL video podcast series. Welcome to Embracing Autism IRL. In this video series, we interview guests from a variety of backgrounds who are all linked together through autism. From advocates to therapists to parents and autistic adults, this series will take a well-rounded approach to sharing diverse perspectives on autism spectrum disorder. Our guests are encouraged to speak freely and be their authentic selves when discussing controversial yet critical topics in the autism community. If you'd like to watch the full unedited video of our interview-style podcast spinoff, Embracing Autism IRL, please subscribe to our YouTube channel of the same name and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Autism Wish. New episodes release monthly. Without further ado, meet Laura Hales. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Embracing Autism IRL. Today, I have Laura Hales with me. And Laura Hales is a mother of two autistic children. She's an autism advocate and an author who recently began writing true stories about her autistic children. She was inspired to promote autism acceptance when she discovered that the current literature available is severely lacking. Laura's mission is to create a more inclusive world for her sons and other neurodivergent children like him. Hi, Laura. How you doing? Good. How are you? I'm good. It's a little chilly, but other than oh that, I'm gosh. good. <laughs> and it came on so fast. I know, right? So fast. <laughs> so first of all, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show. Sure. And um, I just want to go ahead and just dive in because I feel like there's just so much to explore. I'm really excited to talk to you. First, I just want to know a little bit more if you could tell me about your background in advocacy work that you do and perhaps how your role involves parents of the special needs community. Sure. Um, my background in advocacy, I feel like is similar to a lot of parents who get into advocacy is that we kind of had to by default. It's either sink or swim. There generally isn't anyone there to hold your hand throughout this process. You have a child that is autistic and there's no handbook. There's no, well, here's your guide through the public education system. You just have to figure it out. And something that I have learned is that if it doesn't feel right, and by right, I mean fair, like that doesn't seem right. And if that's the case, there's usually a law, whether federal or state, that you could use to argue your way into validating that feeling that you have. Usually there's a law attached to that feeling that you have. As far as how I interact with other parents about advocacy, uh, I've noticed that within uh, a parent's realm, you have so many professionals involved interacting with you and your child, helping you understand your child. And those are generally not other parents. Those are generally you have um, physicians, doctors, therapists of dozens and dozens of kinds. For example, we do food therapy, occupational therapy, speech therapy, behavioral therapy, and that's all on top of just meeting regularly with your doctor, different med checks. And so what I noticed is that uh, each individual professional brings their own very valuable and well-educated opinion based on their interactions, usually not with their own children, but with children um, that they have had professional interactions with, done clinical studies, gone to college and studied things in their textbooks. And there's this piece missing currently in advocacy that's hopefully kind of what I'm trying to fit into or trying to be a voice to other parents, which is when you go to a food therapist and they say, we'll just take out all the sugar. And you're like, can't like, and you're just like, sure, sure. And you just, you you can't connect with what they're 
advising you to do. Like it's not realistic. It's not an appropriate next step. And because I'm a parent, I can put it within this context where parents say, you know what? That, that I could do, right? Instead of, um, you know, a dentist saying, ma'am, I don't know what to tell you. Your child needs to brush their teeth every morning and night for at least 60 seconds. They need to floss. They need to do a fluoride rinse or we're going to have, and it's not that those things aren't true, but they can't necessarily guide me from A to B. They're just saying B needs to happen. And I'm trying to share the steps of how we haven't really gotten from A to B per se, but A to A.1, 0.2, 0.3, and what the next step would be so that parents can, without guilting or traumatizing their kids, compassionately help them with the next step. Like, for example, my kid, we found a different toothbrush that was like softer and had different kinds of bristles. And it wasn't advertised as like a special toothbrush of any kind. We just found it and tried it and it was successful. It's probably not the best option available, but it's where what we can do right now. And that's what I'm trying to give on my social media. I have like conversations. I have a bunch um, coming up at local libraries where I'll be talking to their staff and parents and families about normalizing stimming. That's a big mission of mine is to help people understand what stimming is, help them to understand that they do it too. Everybody does it, whether you're neurotypical or not. It just looks different. Stimming is just an expression of an emotion. We laugh. Laughing's weird. Like if you pull laughing out of context, (laughs) what the heck is even that? Like you think something's amusing (laughs) and then this big weird sound comes out of your mouth and some people snort and some people like cackle and some people wheeze and like that's just fine in society. Like we just accept that. And that's really strange behavior. It serves no... Uh, you know, survival purpose. And yet, you know, my autistic friend laughs or expresses their humor by flapping their hands. And we're like, oh my gosh, what are they doing? That's like so weird and distracting. And so it's fun, you know, a little bit of humor, a little bit of relate to yourself, meaning a neurotypical person. And then they can see where they can understand their autistic peers and they're expressing the same needs. They're just expressing it differently. What initially sparked your interest in advocacy? Because given all the information you just shared to me, that to me indicates that you are definitely like knee deep in the world of advocacy and clearly very passionate about it. So I'm just curious, like what sparked that passion? Sure. I mean, I like I said, I feel like a lot of this is sink or swim. It's like moving to a foreign country and that's where you need to be and never taking the time to learn the language. And just being like, well, I don't know, that's too bad. And it makes um, buying my French baguettes really complicated. And, you know, they don't appreciate that I can't communicate. I can't build um, meaningful relationships very well because I don't speak the language. I don't try to understand the social customs. I don't immerse myself in their culture. Um, So, you know, that's too bad. And, you know, not everybody has the privilege of, I was able to be at home and focus a lot on my children's behavior 
pulling apart their behavior and understanding and really thinking of what they must be experiencing and how I can better help them in a compassionate way troubleshoot and provide solutions. So instead of just saying, don't do that, I'm looking at their behavior and I'm thinking, what need are they trying to express? And how can I help them fulfill that need and then provide a more appropriate alternative solution, help teach them, hey, instead of hitting me to get my attention, you can just be like, hey, and you got it. Yeah, I feel like that's one of the things that a lot of people miss when it comes to autism. I've heard this a lot where people, parents, they kind of think that their kid is just misbehaving or acting up in a certain way because they're seeing their kid's behavior through like a neurotypical lens. And the things that I think often gets lost is that there is some sort of communication there that's being missed, essentially. Yes. And I think that even... Even autistics, like um, I'm very heavily involved in the autistic community because I'm also autistic. And so I've spoken to some autistic adults and even autistic adults sometimes don't quite understand when a nonverbal child is trying to communicate something. Yes. I do think it is hard and challenging and blurry sometimes, but I do think that's an area that still needs to be worked on. Sure. I don't think I'm autistic. I have had several people within the autism community be like, yeah, you are. And I've had several people outside of the autistic community be like, nah, you made eye contact with me. But you know, as a female who has moderately appropriate social skills, getting a diagnosis would be really challenging. So for now, for all intents and purposes, being outside of the autism community myself, being someone who I think is not autistic, I hesitate to make any or state any judgments that I see within that community because it's not my community to be a part of. But I do think that it's always true that we always talk about how every autistic person is completely different. There are some sort of lanes of behavior that we can relate to, but we're it's like saying, well, because my experience as a verbal um, 22-year-old autistic man who went to college and has a degree and who studies computer science or whatever it is and has a successful job monetarily, whatever, it's like expecting that person to be like Rain Man. Like, first of all, ew, Rain Man. But also two totally different experiences. And I think it would be like me saying I'm a mom. And just because I'm a mom, I understand all other moms. Yeah, that's actually a really good example. I haven't thought of it that way, but that's like a great way to explain it. There are some things that I could more understand than maybe someone who hasn't had children at all. But to speak on other mother's behalf and say, I understand because I'm a mother, hello, So I understand their voice completely is like, "Mm -hmm." but then you're discounting what what a lot of the autistic community also really tries to advocate for and get people to understand is the variety of what the spectrum is. And it's so many different interests and skills and struggles and needs that aren't met and different ways of life. And so I think anytime anyone speaks on someone else's behalf without not treading lightly. I don't know that what the most accurate or appropriate way to say without it. being cautious about how they're talking about what they're talking about essentially. Sure, or just, you know, just cushioning it with generally speaking or it's been my experience that I can speak to my experiences what I have observed. 
Like tagging a disclaimer. Sure, <laughs> sure. And and that makes sense. Like I lived in uh, South Korea for six years and there are a lot of things I could tell you that oh, what I generally observed about South Koreans. But does that apply to every South Korean? Like, of course not. It's a whole population of like millions of people. So I, I think it's the same. And if people, um, and autistics included, if they feel they can speak on other people's behalfs, because a large part of their identity crosses over with someone else, then they're invalidating their own individuality. And maybe they are and have some other reasoning for it that I haven't heard before, for sure. See, here's that disclaimer. <laughs> maybe they have some other thing that I haven't heard about and I'm going to get humbled. And, you know, I'm always listening to the adult autistic community to know how to better understand my children. That doesn't mean I always agree with what every autistic person says because it's such a variety of people. That's saying, like, I agree with all people that have brown hair. Like, no. Right. Just like anyone else, right? Or not. Exactly. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's like any any group or category that you have, it's no one's ever going to be the same in that group or category. No. I follow you like on Instagram and all these other places, and you're constantly talking about advocacy. That's kind of like what piqued my interest. I know that you're talking to a lot of parents just by, you know, means of the internet, right. just how this works. What is the most common pain point that you've heard from parents when it comes to advocating for their kids in school? I'd say there's a couple. First, you don't know what you don't know. When it comes to being a parent within the public education system, knowing the rights that you have as someone who suspects your child needs an IEP and has a disability, or the child already has a disability, sorry, already has an IEP or a 504, you don't know what questions to ask. You don't know what things to say. You know, I, I don't agree with that assessment. I would like to request this data. You don't know what you have a right to. And where I find, again, there's another gap that I'm just trying to bridge all these gaps. And I feel like I'm almost like a tightrope walker with one foot on two tightropes. And I'm like going into the split slowly. <laughs> um, we all know that our public education system, they are overworked, underpaid. They have very few resources. And so with all of that going on and however many children that they are responsible for, it's our children, the children that have disabilities, IEPs, 504s, it's their rights that end up being like, you know, these poor teachers are like, I literally don't have time to do this. And there's that facilitation piece. So what I really hope for and wish would happen more often is if a teacher, an admin, whoever it is, sees I can't fulfill this part for you. I know you have every right to it and your child has every right to it. It's literally impossible with how my schedule is set up. Your IEP says this many minutes. You're legally entitled to this many minutes. I don't have that. I'm not being given that. It's that the teacher, the admin needs to facilitate. This is who you need to contact. This is the special education coordinator for the district. This is a special education advisor or whoever it is that's one step higher. I think something tricky that often happens is that teachers can view my advocacy on behalf of my child as a um, dig at their attempts to provide my child a free and appropriate public education. 
And that's not it at all. <laughs> um, I've been called a Karen. I've been called entitled. And what I love about entitled is that's literally what your civil rights are. Like you're literally entitled to your civil rights. So I was like, <laughs> that's true. It's a good choice of word. They're not wrong, right? You are entitled. I was like, oh, my literal brain was like, yes. Can I ask you sure. from your experience? What would you say are the first steps that a parent should take then if they suspect that their child's needs aren't being met at the school? So I say this all the time. You need documentation, documentation, documentation. One of the most motivating things within society and culture is money. If the school district realizes that if you took your case for your child to court and that you had the evidence and would win. They don't want that to happen. And that doesn't mean they're like big hungry money people with like, you know, these old guys in big suits being like, ma ha ha ha. That, you know, that's, that's not really how reality works. It's more like they have so many other things going on that what they're paying attention to, which fire they're putting out at the moment, you kind of have to be like, hey, my fire's the biggest. And some people might say, like I've been told, what about all the other kids? Uh, hello? Like, so you just expect them to drop? And I'm like, well, those other kids aren't my responsibility. I get what you're saying. And I'm going to advocate as hard as I can on that teacher's behalf for her classroom to be appropriately staffed or for his classroom to have the appropriate resources or perhaps for a different placement for the child if their needs can't be met within this classroom. So I'm obsessed with like serial murders. Cool, 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 cool. But being the crime junkie that I am, evidence is so important. It doesn't matter what he said, she said. Um, if you get a call from an administrator or from a teacher that's like, hey, Alan had a really hard time today. This is what happened. I'm not saying that that's not important. Communication between you and the teacher is super important. But in a courtroom or as far as getting your child services that they need, that conversation did not happen. There's no record of that conversation anywhere. And so you have to make sure that a record is being made. So some people will record the conversations that they have on the phone. And depending on which state you live in, you have to inform them or you don't have to inform them. That's one of two things. But you can say, hey, I'm going to record this conversation. You can do that. You can do that in IEP meetings. I noticed that like in an IEP meeting that I was in with my kids, I learned that you could record the sessions. So the first one that I did, I didn't record. And then the second time when I told them I would like to record. Whole different ballgame. They kind of act differently. Yeah, it's very, it's very strange. It's like it gets suddenly very like different. I don't know. But like attitudes definitely change when you suddenly say you're recording something. I guess I get it. But isn't that shocking? It's strange, yeah. Like, you'll notice everyone gets real quiet and they think real carefully about what they're going to say because now they can be held liable because we're talking about court proceedings. We're talking about legal proceedings. I think that's what people and parents don't understand. We're not talking about you're trying to get your daughter in the best dance school. We're talking about legal proceedings and you're making legal decisions on behalf of your child. So honestly, in my perfect world, I think it would make sense like you are afforded an attorney when you've committed a crime and you can't afford one yourself. I think you should be afforded an attorney, legal representation, because you are dealing with legal matters that are very serious on behalf of your child. But because generally it's just mom or dad, 
who's popping into the meeting and being like, I don't know what's going on. They're saying, Judy, my child sucks at this, 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 this. They're hitting, they're kicking, they're biting, they're screaming. We don't know what to do with them. Sign this paper. And you're like, I'm really sorry about that. Okay. And again, like I said before, we don't know what we don't know. So we don't know what rights we do have, what to ask for next. Well, wow, it sounds like, you know, Judy's really struggling in class. It sounds like we need to reevaluate their accommodations, their access to different resources and tools in the classroom. Can you give me the data that you've been collecting? And usually they're like, oh, we haven't been collecting data. And you're like, then how? any of these decisions. So, so many things, but I'd say documentation is the absolute thing that, I mean, that's how all cases get solved, for example, and that's how you can prove to people who aren't in the classroom. So the powers that be. So when you appeal to the teacher or the administration, generally they're going to say to you, sorry, there's nothing we can do about it. And they generally do mean there's nothing we at this local school. I think for many parents, they interpret that as we, as a public education system in America, can't do anything about it. And that's not accurate. We kind of take that as, well, I was told no, so I guess I have to homeschool forever. I guess that's my only option. Instead of, oh, okay, I hear you saying that, you know, this may not be the appropriate environment for my child or the appropriate setup. So can you tell me who I should contact next within the district? That transitional piece, that connecting piece is what's missing. And I'm one of the few people that like knows that piece. And that is what you know, as a catalyst to like everything else, it gets it to the people who can do something about it. So I'm not requesting that teachers do things that are impossible or outside of their job. I don't know that I'd even say requesting. I am like really kindly demanding, not like demanding, but like um, I am demanding, it is our right, the appropriate documentation so that we can have my child's free and appropriate public education, which is his civil right. It's not like an extra. It's not like a whipped cream and cherry on top of your ice cream sundae. It is, I ordered an ice cream sundae and I'd like ice cream. <laughs> it's like, the, it's, it's the basic of it. That's true. I mean, that's true. One of the things that you mentioned that I think is true and, and accurate is like the mention of saying that we should have like lawyers basically at these. I get that. Bare minimum, though, and realistically, I think we could at least have an advocate yes. as part of it. So, like, I can understand that a lawyer might be out of reach financially or something like that. Sure. But, like, at a bare minimum, I do feel like an advocate is lower hanging fruit. And I feel like that should at least be like each school should have somebody who's not associated with the school but somebody kind of like on retainer for parents who doesn't get a kickback from the school or something like right. that so that it's unbiased. Just at least a go-to somewhere for these parents to go to to have some sort of reference point. Because most parents have no idea what their rights are or no idea that their kid is actually protected legally with a lot of these options. Well, and were, you, were you just supposed to like Google it? I know for me, when I'm researching special education laws, it's hard to find the actual laws. What you'll get are people's summarizations of laws. So in every IEP meeting you get, it's usually state requirement that they present to you your rights as a parent 
for these procedural meetings or something. It's a packet. And then it's so serious. It's serious enough when they hand you that packet that they document in the meeting sign-in sheet that you either refused or accepted that packet. And yet, if you ever were to take that packet and actually read it, it's all not laws. It's just summarizations of you can request an advocate and doesn't tell you what an advocate does or who they are. You could go to mediation. I don't know what mediation is. I don't know. Is that something I have to pay for? Is that something? We want your child to be happy. IEPs are individualized. But it doesn't tell you, you know, if we're not working well together or if I feel like I'm not being heard and I maybe need to go, um, not against the school, but I need to choose somebody who doesn't have other interests in the school. Their responsibility isn't the entire school if you're an administrator or isn't the entire classroom of students if you're a teacher. Someone who, like me, their entire mission is my child alone. What they do offer by way of rights what they do offer is like decaf, <laughs> you know? Let's dive into it then. What are some rights that you'd like to highlight for parents when they are trying to advocate for their child at school? So you have a right to the data and data is information that's supposed to be collected on your child. Your child cannot have any goals, cannot have any uh, measurement of progress of goals unless there is data being collected. So you have the right to see the actual data that's been collected, not just the educator's summary of the data, but the actual data, meaning there are oftentimes, and again, not because teachers are terrible people, but that teachers don't take specific data, but they'll just say, well, it's time to fill out my progress reports on Tommy. Has he gotten better at handwriting? Well, I'd say a little bit. And they'll just summarize. And what happens is we miss those trends. We miss things that are super important, that specific data. So uh, real IEP data would say something like um, three out of four times, you know, Tommy will use appropriate grip without prompting versus like a fist grasp. You have the right to request that data. And a lot of times when you request it, you'll see like this, sure, sure, sure. And you're like, and not a summarization of the data, like the actual data. And you'll see this kind of like deer in headlights moment. And they're like, uh, yeah. Yeah, 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 not a problem. I can get that to you in about three weeks-ish. And you'll notice that the data that's been collected is the previous three weeks. So they just needed the time to collect it. Um, and again, I know everyone's doing their best. That's not uh, That's not um, really what I'm here to argue about, whether you're doing your best or not. I'm here to make sure my child gets their civil rights. You also have the right to have other people in your meeting. So anyone that has special knowledge of your child, so obviously your spouse, your partner, it could also be a grandparent, it could also be a friend. So a lot of times when you are in an IEP setting, if you're like me and your spouse happens to work during the day, it's literally just you and then this entire room of professionals who are in their job who, you know, have probably kind of pre-gamed a little bit and talked to each other about, well, in this meeting, we're going to talk about this. We're really trying to avoid giving them that one-to-one -one aid. 
So if we can kind of get her off that idea that Tommy really needs that one, then, you know, you know, as you know, we only have three aides to go around the whole school right now and, and no one's applying. So we can't, we can't get Tommy another eight. That one hits way too close to home. <laughs> right? Hey, I, I get it. You got this whole thing to try to figure out, right? And so you go in as a parent, and unless you know your rights and not only know them, but know them well enough to make people feel a little uncomfortable and not uncomfortable by being inappropriate, but uncomfortable by disagreeing. You think of how lawyers and judges and attorneys talk to each other in meetings or in examinations when they're questioning a witness. And it's very direct, right? The verbiage that they're using is so important. You can't fluff around things. And what's tricky is that like in American English, we fluff around things all the time. And I know a lot of my autistic friends are just like, can people just like talk straight? Oh, yes. <laughs> like if you say, hey, you want to go to lunch? And I'm like, not really interested in lunch. And I'm like, nah. And that suddenly you're like offended. I'm confused. Because what just happened here and how did we get in a fight, you know, and then the neurotypical person's like, you don't want to hang out with me and you hate me. And the other person's like, I didn't feel like going to lunch. And that's, we, we take that kind of conversation out of legal conversations. And so I know for myself, I've learned to speak legally, which is very kindly, always appropriately. I never get super heated or animated or even very emotional. I'm very specific about my verbiage. I go in there knowing what verbiage I need to get on the record. Certain things I need them to say, whether it's the school nurse or whether it's the teacher. And then once I get that on record, I know, okay, I've just gotten this violation on record. This is another thing that can show my son's free and appropriate public education is not being served to him at this location. But again, a lot of times people aren't used to that kind of just be positive attitude. So what would you tell, I guess, parents, what technique or buzzwords or what do you think that they should do in terms of approaching an IEP meeting when they feel unheard in that meeting? Because I know like for me, for example, I'll go to IEP meetings. I know my rights. I'm talking to them. I'm trying to tell them like what I know my kid needs. And they're always coming up with some sort of like excuse or not quite saying no, but also not saying yes. And then trying to give a reason as to why that might take time to consider. I, th I think you probably know the dance I'm talking about. And I think that's where the not super direct language really fails us is because, you know, like I said, they pre-gamed and they have an idea of, of what's going on. So some of the verbiage that I would use is FAPE, free appropriate public education. As soon as you start talking about FAPE or free appropriate public education, their little antennas should start kind of worrying and saying like, oh, they're talking about like rights. We're talking legal. We're not talking about what you would like him to have. You're talking about what they're legally entitled to as a child that lives in the United States. We're talking legal stuff so that they get a little more careful. And, and so they're not going to say, you know, I've gotten a lot of messages from parents where an administrator or a teacher will say, oh yeah, we don't do one-to-one -one aids here. And I'm like, hmm, did you get that on record? 
that's always usually my follow-up question. <gasps> did you get that on record? Because if you did, you've, you've got all the evidence you need that this is not the appropriate placement or that they're making uninformed false statements where if the child requires a one-to-one aid, they get a one-to-one aid. That's like saying that this child in a wheelchair, oh, we don't do wheelchair ramps here. And just expecting that to be like, okay, I, I guess they don't do ramps here, so... That was actually very similar to what was going on with us. We have been struggling with our eldest who is supposed to have like supervision on the playground equipment because she has hypotonia and other issues. And she's gotten hurt four different times already, including a head injury. And they were not able to tell us what happened because for that split second, they looked away. And so I'm just like a bit frustrated because I'm like, okay, that's a violation of the IEP. If you didn't look, that means they weren't supervised. Yeah. And do you have that? Just this is exactly what I do in a consultation. Like, do you have that documented that they're like, I looked away for a split second. Yeah. And of course, that's not documented. They're not going to document that they (laughs) did something wrong. So like, that's the part that I feel like is hard. Sometimes when that happens, and it's a fresh experience, I'll tell the person, go back send them an email that just says, Hey, I just wanted to make sure I understood you correctly today, where you said that you had looked away for a moment. And that's when Mackenzie, I don't know, bonked her head. I just want to make sure I understood that correctly. And if they were like, yes, that's accurate. Then you have it on record that that's what happened. Um, If you're like, Oh, dang, we didn't get it written down, then it won't happen. But there are ways to follow up. And I follow up every phone conversation with, I just want to make sure I understood. Um, Depending on whoever you're working with, uh, the amount of time you feel like they may have, thoroughness, whatever, um, I would summarize it myself, what I understood, and then check with them because sometimes they don't have time to put in all the effort to rewrite everything that they have told you. So sometimes they're a little more appreciative, cooperative. If you're like, did I understand this da, 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 correctly? And if they say yes, it's on record that, yes, I did look away when that happened. And then you have violation one, two, three, four. And again, those violations get taken up. And it's not necessarily that that means that teacher did something wrong. What that may mean is that teacher has too many other responsibilities. It may mean that that teacher requires additional training. It may mean that that teacher requires um, additional personnel or people within her group of responsibility sharing that she can say, hey, I'm getting a phone call from da-da-da-da, can you watch Angela for five minutes? You know, so that's not necessarily to say, okay, teacher, you failed. That's to say, whatever the plan is, we're not getting all of our bases covered. So this is evidence that not all of our bases are getting covered. But people tend to take that personally. Yeah. Unfortunately, I feel like IEP meetings feel more personal than they probably should feel. But I know like that's definitely been our experience because like we're in a rural area. And so the resources are very limited. And I totally feel for these teachers. Like there are not enough aides to go around. There's not enough staff to go around. There's way too many kids like our kids at our school. um, They actually shuffle them around a bunch of different buildings and Mm. facilities that aren't even on the school campus because there's not enough room. So like I totally get it. 
But at the same time, I have to be advocating and on on the lookout for my child's safety. Like if my kid is getting head injuries or things like that. So like that, I think is like that delicate and frustrating dance when it comes to the IEPs is like, we know our kids need to be protected, regardless of whether or not those resources are there. Like each child, when they're in a school system, each special education child is tied to funding. Right. That funding goes to the school. Right. So by default, that that resource is there. It's right. just like, where is it being allocated? Right. Some of the verbiage, again, that, that may be helpful, apart from FAPE legal verbiage, would um, be, yeah, that's not acceptable. Like, that's pretty finalizing. That's not just saying, I'm not sure that I agree with that. Or, you know, there's so much wiggle room and grayish. But if you say, I find that unacceptable. I don't feel that that would be an individualized education program for my child or an appropriate educational program for my child. Or, you know, I disagree with that summarization. Um, I feel that the data and always reference the data. For example, if you're in a debate team and you're spitting out referenced facts, aka evidence, versus, well, in my opinion, seagulls are the best birds. So, well, it would be weird for you to say that in a meeting. Seagulls, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And here I am being like, this is what you should say in a meeting: seagulls. Like, seagulls, got it. <laughs> um, if you were to say, you know, which would be more convincing as far as we better get on this? This is the fire that we need to put out. If you look at, I've provided for you on March third. I was called because um, the school told me, quote, he is too upset and we are unsure of what to do. And on March 5th, I was asked to pick him up as well. The report that came back, I have that out for you, talks about how he was triggered by a fire alarm that went off. And, you know, in his IEP, we have that we let them know that fire alarms are going to happen and they are given their headphones that's not what happened in this case. And, you know, and so I'm presenting this list of evidence versus, well, I I just don't think that's fair. Yeah. One is clearly going to win. Totally different approaches. One is, these are the facts of the case, quote unquote case. And one is like, I don't know, like, I just don't like it. One's just an opinion. So in a court, evidence wins and is money money for the district. And they would rather give you the money up front and allocate the resources up front than have it be on the backside of you know a, a lawsuit that they lose. And every lawsuit that they lose is like a ding to their accreditation. And so it, that's really important to them. So they definitely don't want that to happen. But again, if you're a parent who just listens to people within the school system that have very good intentions say, well, I'm sorry, this is all we can do. And you just say, well, I guess that's all they can do. And that's it. Then sure, there will be no change. And it blows my mind that people think that's the solution, that we just need to be grateful for what we can get, even though everybody is miserable, that that should be how we handle the situation rather than I understand that gathering data and showing deficiencies within public education isn't super comfortable for everybody, but I'm also going to get that teacher the support that they need by proving they don't have enough assistance or have enough resources there. For example, some things to ask about are the background education and licensing of each person on your child's IEP team legally 
one person, at least one person, needs to have a special education background license or certification, which seems like duh, but there are a lot of times where that is not the case. And then shocking when people who don't have a special education background, license, or education deal with children with various disabilities, it's almost like they don't know what they're doing. And they'll just be like, well, I asked him to stop and he didn't. And you're like, he can't, what do you mean? He literally can't hold still. Like, well, he fidgets a lot. And I'm like, oh, and? That's part of it. (laughs) Yeah, I've definitely experienced that where like when my kid had like their first experience at a public education system, they had this kind of like red green system of like behavior. And my kid was getting dinged for like red behaviors for things like running away when they are elopement risk and it's on their IEP or like things like volume control of like (laughs) shouting or whatever with their voice. I'm like, they're autistic. That's part of interoception. So it's frustrating because the teacher actually is like a special needs teacher, but I I think they're not keeping up with their C, what are they called? CEUs or things like that. I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't really know. It could just be the school doesn't have enough resources. They're overwhelmed. They're burnt out. Like I can empathize with all of that, but at the end of the day, I have to look out for my kid. Right. Well, and something that I've said before is that, you know, the deficiencies within the public education system should not lie on the shoulders of my child's civil rights. So look, I get that there are deficiencies. That's what I am making apparent. That it's my child with a disability that has to just like kind of put up and shut up. Out of all the people involved in this part, the most vulnerable person is the one. No, 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 no. And sometimes, like we don't, we don't think about it that way. Like we, we all think about, but what about me? You know, but the whole educational system is set up for each individual child. That's who we're here for. Like that's the whole purpose mm-hmm. of this entire system. And yet we're going to be like, well, they're different. So like, mm, you know, they should just be grateful <laughs> to like be among us, you know, elite yeah. normies. I don't know. <laughs> so let me like. Do a complete 180 here and give you a chance before we wrap up, because I want to make sure that we hear about your book. Um, Like I mentioned earlier, uh, Laura is an author. So can you just tell me a little bit about your book, Um, maybe a little background and um, where listeners can find them? Sure. So there are two books. The third one will be uh, published this year. The first one's called Alex and the Drummer. Let me grab them for you. I know if you're just listening, you can't see it. Just imagine the most amazing book cover you've ever seen in your whole life. That's what it is. So Alex and the drummer, and there's my son, Alex, and he has headphones over his ears. And these are all true stories. So what most people appreciate is the relatability of these stories. A lot of, you know, I talked about the deficiency within autistic literature for young children. And that's why I wanted to share what we have experienced. It was either portrayed as this toxically positive superpower. I mean, there are just like every other skill and struggle. There are things that are like really cool that, you know, this is how I experience kind of my version of being autistic, but also a lot of things that are really hard. And to pretend like it's all this positive superpower is just really discounting the struggle a lot of my autistic friends and my kids 
struggle with and that this community and world is not designed for them to feel comfortable at all. And so I think to invalidate that is a huge disservice. So it was either that, and that is not the message I want to give my kids. Um, or it was that the whole book is about they are autistic. So James is autistic. That means his brain is da-da-da-da. That means the wiring in his brain, sometimes he hears things that are just loud and that hurts him. And it's not that that isn't important. It's very important. I just think we've done that. And could it always be done more? Of course. But what I didn't see was beyond that sort of awareness kind of story was the acceptance. So now rather than just we're seeing, you know, uh, characters be represented in, you know, TV shows and in movies. And again, it's all this like stereotypical kind of representation. It's the nerdy scientist who's socially awkward, bazinga. And then we get, you know, this doctor who's like a genius doctor, but socially he's awkward when he wants to talk to ladies or something. And I get that for some people that is their story. That's okay. For a lot of other people like us, it's going to be like Alex and the Muffin Man, where they ran out of one of his five foods that he currently feels safe eating. And how many meltdowns have we all experienced in a grocery store with our child, with ourselves? And I describe the sensory environment in here with Alex and how the clang of the carts and the lighting is awful. It's like that buzzy lighting that almost buzzes in your head. It's so visually loud. Everything's bright. All the signs and advertisings are, you know, they're all trying to catch your attention. So it's so in your face and overwhelming. You're uncomfortable. You don't know how long you're going to be here. You're sitting in a cart. Do you remember what it feels like to sit in a cart with that back part, like (laughs) jabbing into your spine? Like, oh. So where can my listeners find your books? HTTP colon slash slash Alex and the drummer dot square dot site. And I also have um, autism apparel. I have like shirts and sweatshirts, kindness themed shirts, and there's some educational tools on there. I have a podcast of my own where I talk about advocacy. I answer listener questions. We talk a lot about potty training because it's whatever people ask me and that's <laughs> a hot topic. A lot of basic functioning skills, a lot of understanding behavior. And again, it's not just so that your child can perform in quotes like a neurotypical person. That is not a goal that anybody should have for their autistic child. Um, Even for your neurotypical child, it should not be for them to perform in a way that you as the parent want them to. It's for them to have opportunity and access to an education, to a life, to resources where they can choose to do and be who they want to be. And I think that's another kind of shift that's a little different that um, a lot of the sort of toxically positive autism kind of things may steer toward. Like my son now speaks and they 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 speak in conferences and they went to college and they and that's great. I'm not saying that's not great, but that's not in the cards for a lot of my autistic friends or maybe they don't even want to do that. But I want them to have the opportunity to do that. The access, facilitation. I want to be able to facilitate whatever any other person has uh the right to 
I want my child to have that exact same right. I think that's a great way to wrap things up because really that is advocacy in a sentence there. Before we leave, I want to share Laura's link. She's got a group on Facebook that's well over a thousand people on it. So if anybody's interested, um, we have a link here, tinyurl.com slash the drummer stories. Um, and again, the other link for our audio listeners for you to snag your copy of Alex and the Drummer is alexandthedrummer.square.site. And those links will be posted in the video description of this episode as well. So you can check that out there um, in case you are not able to grab it via audio. <laughs> so thanks so much. Um, Laura, I know you also said that we might have some freebies for our audience. Where can they find that? I have some free coloring pages for you that have to do with our first story. They're super cute and sweet. Um, it shows my son, Alex, again, with his ear noise defenders on and that representation of feeling like, oh, you know what? I wear those. I've never seen a kid in a book or I've never colored a picture of somebody who's wearing, you know, they're not like listening to music or jamming out, but they're helping their body and their feelings feel safe. Like that's me. And that representation is priceless. Awesome. So I will make sure to have those links again in the description of this video. And everybody listening or watching, you can feel free to snag your copy. Thanks again, Laura. I really appreciate you taking the time to be on our podcast. And I hope you enjoyed it too. You're so welcome. Thank you. This has been the audio from the Embracing Autism podcast live stream series. Please check out our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash at autism wish to catch these shows live. Otherwise, stick around next week for our next episode. This is Embracing Autism.